I'm Dr. Brent Schillinger, along with my colleague, Dr. Abby Strauss. As part of our physician wellness program, with a focus on physicians suffering from opioid use disorder and other addictions, we turn now to a discussion from an employer's point of view on the challenges that physicians in recovery face when it comes to re-entering the workplace. Our guest, Dr. Steve Chambers, he has a background in internal medicine and occupational health, also holds a master's in public health. Dr. Chambers is medical director of the Chambers Medical Group with locations both on the west coast of Florida and in Kentucky. Welcome to the program, Dr. Chambers. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. We stumbled upon Dr. Chambers through a commentary that he authored a few years back on Kevin M.D., and the title of his contribution was Help Me Help Doctors in Recovery. So, Steve, what motivated you to write this column? Years ago, when I first went to Kentucky, I hired a physician in recovery. Basically, it was a tough decision because it was a decision to hire a guy with no past in recovery, and I had a guy that was in recovery. Chose the other guy. And it happened to be a terrible mistake. Soon after I hired the doctor, we parted ways and I hired the doctor in recovery. And that doctor, by the way, is still with me. And this is since 2005. He introduced me to an orthopedic surgeon who actually had been on TV for his writing prescriptions for oxycodone, got hooked on oxycodone, orthopedic surgeon. And this is the first time, 2005, I had never heard a doctor tell me that these narcotics hopped him up. Most, shall we say, I can't say normal, but if you've ever had one for pain or whatever, you you take a nap. This particular doctor let me know that if he took one, it gave him a little energy. If he took a handful, he could operate all night. He introduced me to a couple other guys and another orthopedic surgeon we hired. He said the same thing. The narcotics hopping these guys, you know, I had never heard it before 2005. It does happen. And so the question is why? And it's worthy of discussion because that may be one of the things that some of these doctors were attracted to and then they got into trouble because of it. Exactly. Then listening to just what you've said thus far. I think it's wonderful that you didn't put these doctors into shame. You didn't embarrass them. You said you made a mistake. You got your act together. Let's give you a chance. Because so much of the rehabilitative process is having a future. That's what you did. I think it's great. How many doctors in recovery do you now employ? Right now, I have five. I was going to the list of the guys that have come and worked with us and moved on or retired. But what I want to tell you, back to this original guy, actually the second guy, the orthopedist with the hydrocodone. When he joined us, I said, look, part of the deal is we are going to speak to every referring physician in the city that you used to work with and get referrals from. Oh no, don't make me do that. Don't make me do that. I just, I can't face those guys. I said, yeah, we're going to face them all because I want to get some business from these guys. I want referrals. And so he let me know he was a little reticent at first, but when he started meeting those guys, those guys were hugging him when he walked into their office. People forget very quickly and they want to root for the underdog and they started referring him cases again. People want to help people succeed. I was proud to see him do that. And when we were through for the day, I mean, he was somewhat wrung out and mentally fatigued. But he said, you know, this is probably one of the best things I've ever done. You made me go face these guys. And now I won't be ashamed when I see him in a restaurant or grocery store or anywhere else. They don't want to see anybody after if they've been through what this guy was. been put through the ringer. Lost absolutely everything. He went from making a million dollars a year 
to living in a two-bedroom apartment with one car. He has retired from us, but now he's doing IMEs and making a great living and has moved into a nice home again. And now he's back on his feet. So before you made the decision to hire a physician in recovery, and it sounds like it just was coincidental that you stumbled into this scenario, what issues crossed your mind when you had to make that decision? What concerns did you have? I think relapse is a big one. Early on, when we started to try to grow in Kentucky, relapse is one doctor for me going back to start seeing patients again and not being able to go home. Obviously, in a very selfish way, you know, I just can't afford that to happen. And at that time, my children were pretty young. So that means I'm going to miss a lot of ball games and everything else if they don't work out. So we have had relapses. It will happen. You kind of start getting some clues when this is happening, though. We had a doctor with us, been with me a long time. He started coming to work late, started whining about things that he never whined about, irritable. He and I had words, and never before had we had words. I talked to one of our other doctors who's in recovery, and I said, you know, I, th- I, think, I think he's drinking again. I asked the staff, you smell any booze? How is he with the patients? No, good, 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 good. Months later, he called me uh, Saturday morning and his words were slurred. I could tell he was drunk. He said, I've got to have help. And at that point, I said, Look, what we're going to do, we're going to get you in rehab. You know, he went through the detox fairly quickly and then we took him to Gainesville. And unfortunately for physicians, if you go to one of the rehab centers that I know about, you're there for three months, not a month. It looks like the general population gets one month or 30 days. A physician is going to get 90 days. We always knew that if we could get someone into a facility and keep them there for a while so they could build up their lives, so they could get away from the drugs, so we could build up their egos, work with their families, and help them establish a reconnection to the ground, so to speak. It's interesting because what Brent and I have done, they talk about having to admit that they have a problem, that they cannot do it alone, and how pleased they were once they came to terms with what was going on, that they were able to return to work positions in in different modalities. And so- Oh, absolutely. A very, very long time ago, I was working with a nun who was working in the New York City jails, and she was wonderful and she would say that though these people may have done bad things, you can't judge a person by the single worst thing that they've done. And I think that my opinion is too often out of fear, perhaps, too many of the regulatory agencies tend to hold that above somebody's head forever. Right. And you're saying, no, no, you don't have to do that. Look, they did well. They're doing well. I just think it's so good what you're doing. First of all, one of the greatest fears of these guys is that the Board of Medicine is going to sanction them. That is not a given. If these guys that might be listening right now know they need rehab and they go to rehab, in Florida, the rehab facility is going to contact PRN. And PRN and this physician can work together and never have the board involved. I don't think people understand that. I might have board members listen to today, and that is fine. You don't need to be involved. They go to rehab. They put themselves in rehab. 
the head of the rehab unit feels that they're safe to practice. They hook up with PRN. PRN monitors them. They're having urine tested. They're having blood tested. They're having random tests. This could be one of the safest doctors out there. If anyone is out there listening and they think they need treatment, get the treatment. But you're going to be followed by PRN as a physician or the Kentucky Health Foundation as it relates to Kentucky. But it's a hell of a lot safer than going on and doing whatever drugs you're doing or whatever. Because just as soon as somebody at the hospital or your office smells alcohol, then it's going directly to the board. We've heard repeatedly from physicians, particularly physicians we've done some of these podcasts with who are in recovery, their tipping point was the day they got arrested. Right. It's too late. Exactly. So what further encouragement can you put out there that physicians need not fear to seek treatment? Let me get off that a little bit. Three of our guys had felony convictions. When you get a felony conviction, you're no longer able to take Medicare and Medicaid in many instances, you have what's called an OIG exclusion. It's the Office of Inspector General. It says, okay, which our group, it's perfect. All we take care of auto accidents and workman's comp. We are a non-Medicare, non-Medicaid. It's amazing the different drugs that we have come across with the physicians that have come through working with us. I've got a list right here. Two oxycodone, one heroin one meth, seven alcohol, one Xanax, one Adderall, and one guy, when I was interviewing for the job, told me he would eat the whole PDR if I'd put some butter on. So he was a multi-drug abuser. These guys are coming from every type of drug out there. What about the psychological makeup of these people? If they drift into substance abuse and it's dysfunctional, how do you know that what they're doing is correct with the patients? How much monitoring do you do? Do you rely on, like in Florida for the Physician Recovery Network? What do you mandate? That they, they see a counselor on a regular basis? Or do you just let the various state agency mandate what they want? We have the, the state agency is pretty strict as it is. I mean, they're getting random testing. And you're interacting with these guys. So you can, this is just a great bunch of guys. I'm going to tell you right now, they are normal. They've got a disease, but they are as normal as they could possibly be. They're great doctors. They need an opportunity. And I encourage everybody to hire these guys. It's so important that we get these guys relicensed. We get them a job that they like and they're happier with and they're monitored. The monitoring is probably, my experience, is about five years. I think this is the safest period they have. The five doctors that I have, I can say they're not drinking or doing drugs. You guys hire people, but you can't say that if they're not in the PRM program. You don't know what they're doing. I know what my guys are doing. I'm confident in the fact that they're not doing any drugs because we'll find out pretty quickly if they are. I walk into this from the bias of psychiatry. Uh-huh. And my question always is, well, why did they become addicts? Why did they have a problem? What's in their personality makeup and their ego makeup or whatever that allowed this to happen in the first place? And how much of it is the purely biological component as a disease? And how much of it is the psychological component? I, I'm, I'm repeating myself, but I'm so, I'm so pleased that you're giving these people an opportunity to be the better person that they are. 
These are super guys and gals. One of the guys, Brent, you read the article. This guy was number two in anesthesia at a medical center. But when this happened, they dumped him. So it's very difficult, especially in academics, to go back to that, you know, if you're suspended with that. But you should be able to go out and get a job. And if you're OIG excluded, looking a little more specifically at other things. What's the direct message that you're putting out here for physicians who are involved in the hiring? My message is give them a chance. You might be in a medical center that normally you wouldn't be able to get this guy or girl. This is like the draft. This guy who is a superstar has dropped down to where you might get him rather than this huge mega complex. My feeling is that some of these smaller medical groups like mine and others that don't have 500 physicians, they might drop down to our draft. That's a great thing for employers like us. When someone has an OIG exclusion, are there limitations in terms of what they can do, which medications they can write for, DEA restrictions? Is that an issue? Yes, but frequently they'll have a DEA suspension. But the way we've changed the laws now, as far as prescribing narcotics, it doesn't hurt that much anymore. People aren't prescribing a narcotic in our business. If they don't have a narcotic license, it doesn't matter. The toughest thing for these people, obviously, if, if they had a big surgical practice or all that, is not being able to take the Medicare and Medicaid. You know, they can take the private insurance, but it's a little difficult unless you're going to work cash only. So if people have an OIG exclusion, I think they need to look at practices out there that are cosmetic, a practice like ours, more of a cash type business rather than anything that has Medicare or Medicaid involved. If they get their problem taken care of early enough, it may not rise to the level of getting an OIG exclusion and they can just get themselves fixed and stay in proper recovery with PRN or whatever the group was in Kentucky and right. get their lives back together. That's very promising. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> You're hitting it right on the nail on the head. Don't let it get to the OIG exclusion. Once you reach that level, you've really screwed up. You need to get treatment. You go in recovery, you get in PRN, you go back to your original job. If you're treated, if you get caught, you got alcohol in your breath. Somebody, you do something that draws suspicion with the coworkers. It's too late. Echoing Abby, your attitude is really exemplary. Have you been able to spread this amongst other physicians who are involved in the hiring process in various uh, practices across the country? Years ago, and it really didn't work, I formed a nonprofit called Dr. Bob's Medical Jobs. Anybody know who Dr. Bob was? He started Alcoholics Anonymous, co-founder. So that was the name of my nonprofit, Dr. Bob's Medical Job. So I hired a lady to work. She worked up here and we contacted every PRN program in the country. And I said, send us your impaired physicians and we're going to try to get them jobs. That came from, from the orthopedist who worked for me that got a felony conviction. He said, look, you know, we're ashamed. We don't want to go interview for jobs. You know, we, you know, we're afraid to tell what's happened to us. That was the impetus to start that. And we had some success stories, but overall, the goal was to be able to place these guys for a fee so that the nonprofit could support itself going forward. I funded it for the first couple of years, but then we were mainly getting referrals of people who would never get a job. They'd been out too long. 
that dream didn't actually work out. My advice for people who are in recovery and have been in treatment, don't lie about, especially if you've had a board violation, don't lie about it. Talk about it to the guy that's interviewing because it really ticks me off. I already know about it before they come in and talk to me and then they don't mention it. Be honest about what you've been through and people like to forgive people. I think people want people to be successful. People want to help people. One of the characteristics, and there are many characteristics, but one of the characteristics of someone with a substance problem, they're not truthful. They often lie to cover things up. And so if they don't have the wherewithal to say, hey, doc, I want to work here and uh, not think that you're not going to be able to get the background information, too many bells. Too, they're not ready. They're not ready. It's sad. It's very sad. It's a waste of time. When you talk to these people and you get to know them, do you get a sense of what led them into substance abuse? I just don't think anything. See, you're an expert in this field. I'm not. But I probably hired more guys in recovery. Definitely. Definitely. Probably. And my feeling is it's a disease. They can say, one of my guys, well, I played some college basketball. My knees hurt when I'm operating on. So I, I took some codeine or whatever. And then I started taking one, then two, then a handful, then writing prescriptions for my family members and everybody else. Well, why? We've all taken codeine. I didn't feel like having another one when my pain went away. I don't think about it. They, and what do they say? They started talking about dentists and oral surgeons. What are 5% that were getting, get your teeth taken out? What, three to 5% were going back for more prescriptions later on? So, I mean, it's higher than you think yes. that we're getting yes. hooked on yes. the medication. I want to give you pearls for these guys. Less chance of relapse, get these guys licensed, get them back to work in a happy place and keep them modern. That is the key. Interacting with the board. If you're going to interact with the board, if they've already caught you red-handed, you fight the board, you're going to lose every time. The board's going to win. Have a lawyer. Try to get the best deal you can, but don't dance. I've got guys that work for me, dance, 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 and they only get screwed over in, in the long term. Take it. You're going to get it. The ones that go ahead and get the best deal they can and do the time, they get back to work. These other guys, it just prolongs the inevitable. Well, they're not ready. They really aren't accepting the totality of the situation that they're facing. And the goal is to do what you have to. I'm repeating exactly what you said. Do what you have to do. Get yourself in rehab and then try some way to get back into a gainful, honorable, professional relationship with, in your case, you. That's good. How has the general medical community around you looked at this, responded to this? Do they think that you're just being the charitable guy? Do they think that you're really doing very good work? Do you get snickers? Do you get applause? What do you get? You no, know, I don't run around with doctors, so I don't really care. Some of the guys that work for me are very popular, and they've been through it. And so I see how they become accepted. They're Just as soon as they get out of recovery, they're back to work. They seem to be well accepted in the community. Okay. So good. As far as I'm concerned, it is not with physicians that are not in recovery. They don't know who I am, but there is an underground group in recovery in Kentucky more than in Florida. It's amazing because I got started with the recovery in Kentucky and been more active with that than I have been in Florida. 
they want to call me, I'll, I'll call people and try to do what I can to get them a job. You mentioned that you had formed that nonprofit that didn't blossom up to what your expectations were. But what is your sense? Are there other practices beside yours that go out of their way to look for physicians in recovery? I don't think they're going out of their way and looking for physicians in recovery. I'm really not either, but they're calling me. So it became a byproduct after I met the first two or three, because, you know, they go to Caduceus meetings and all physician recovery meetings, and they start talking, hey, anybody know somebody that can help with a job? And one, one interesting guy that I had, I kept ignoring the phone calls, and he kept calling. My manager said, hey, you, you please return this guy's call. Make a long story short, this guy was a third-year neurosurgery resident. His girlfriend had dumped him, and he was somewhat despondent. So his mother and father are physicians. And his mother flew out to where he was doing his residency starts, you know, staying with him for a while. And next thing you know, he meets this bar fly and they start doing heroin and he overdoses in the apartment and his mother finds him and calls EMS. I mean, she's a physician. Well, there's heroin in the apartment. He gets arrested. He loses his residency. So he goes from being a neurosurgery resident to no job and he'd heard about me. So I finally went to lunch with the guy and I said, look, your mother and father are physicians. They know many more people than I do in this particular town. Why aren't they helping you? And he said, they're ashamed. Let me shadow in your office so I can get a chance to get my license back. And I said, yeah, come on, we'll, we'll shadow. Make a long story short, I hired him full time in a non-physician role because there was a medical business that I wanted to try to get going. And he would shadow when he wasn't doing that. And he started applying to programs. He went before the board because he had been shadowing, getting back in medicine. They let him have a temporary license if he got accepted in a residency program. Well, lo and behold, he, you know, he said, I'll take any position I can possibly get. Fortunately, he got a psychiatry spot. He's now a fourth-year psychiatry resident, and so now he's not doing neurosurgery like he wanted to do, but he's doing psychiatry, and he's thrilled as he can be. I think if those of us who are not in recovery would get more interested, we could really help. We could really help. When I say guys, I mean guys and gals, but we can, we can really help these people. Let me give you, tell you this caveat, too, is that one of my guys recently I started worried about, he was in recovery for alcohol. Now he went beyond where the board is no longer monitoring him. I mean, the PRN is no longer monitoring. And he started being a little, uh, what's the word, uh, you know, disrespectful and to the staff and others. And I thought, you know, this guy could be drinking again. So I went on Amazon and ordered a breathalyzer. I said, you're going to start going to take a breathalyzer and you're going to take it randomly in our office since nobody's following you anymore. He said, I swear to God, I'm, I'm not drinking. I said, well, that's what they all say. That's what everybody tells me. Because when, when you're doing, you're lying. And that's the point I want to bring too. If they're taking drugs, they'll lie to anybody, alcohol or drug. We tested him in zero. And now I continue to test him. He said, how long are you going to test me? I said, until you're nice again. And so probably another month or so. hope he didn't listen to this because he'll think I'm going to quit testing him in a month. He was okay to take it. Good. Good stuff. 
Yes, thank, thanks so much, Steve, for sharing this inspirational story. It's, it's, it's really great, the work that you're doing. Hopefully, we can spread the message to physicians all over. Brent and Abby, thanks so much for having me. And like I said, if I can help them, then direct them to me, and I'll be happy to take the phone call, and maybe I can help them out. That just dovetails with what every other doctor that we've spoken to is they have to come to realize that the success of doing this by themselves is minor and they have they have someone like you to reach out to and they're not alone let me tell you this too and i said this in my paper these guys all of them across the board because i i ask everyone what's your drug of choice they tell me and but then they go on and say you know i just i just don't want anybody to see me i told y'all before earlier in in this talk i don't want to go to the grocery store i don't want to go to church i don't want to go just i'm embarrassed i invariably sit with each one of them and i said you know what you're just not that important that people are thinking about you. They don't think about you. They're worried about going to work. They're worried about their kids. Their wife's on their case or their husband's on their case. They're worried about their own life. Nobody thinks about you. They thought about you the first six weeks when this happened. They never give you another thought. So get it out of your mind. Start going back to church. Do whatever you're going to do. And I said, go on with your life because nobody cares but you and your family. That's part of the whole mentality of someone who has a very significant substance abuse. When it leaves the part of it being the medical aspect of it to the psychological aspect of it, one of the things that always impressed me is at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting somewhere, the person gets up for the first time and looks to this group of people and takes a deep breath and says, I'm an alcoholic and I need help. There you go. That's what they got to do. Mm-hmm. Then they're on the road to recover, right? Then, yep. Once they admit it and get on the road, then get back to their life. And most can go back to the life they had financially and emotionally with their family. They got to mend that probably. But once they do that, they can, you know, what a great life. Good stuff. This has been a terrific conversation. Dr. Steve Chambers, thanks so much for joining with us on this important topic. Thank you, guys. And y'all have a wonderful night and a wonderful holiday coming. 